If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, in God's Word, an unwelcome homecoming. An unwelcome homecoming. It's not fun to go home and no one really wants to have you there, is it? Um, most of us, when we go visit our home, people are glad to see us. Although, uh, after you've gone a first few times after being born again, you get a little inkling of how this goes down, don't you? Oh no, here they come. They're going to probably pray over their meal. They used to drink eight glasses of wine with us, now all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> All the funds but sucked right out of the house, because here they come. You know, they, they think we don't know this, but we do know this, and it bums us out a little bit, because we kind of want everyone to like us. But Jesus never was surprised at how people responded to him, was he? He knew how they would respond. He knew what was in their heart. He said in John, he didn't need to know anything from any man. He knows what's in man knows their thoughts, knows what they're thinking. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll look at three things this morning. An opening, an observation, and an outrage. An opening, an observation, and an outrage. Jesus reads these few verses from the book of Isaiah. Now, first of all, the Word of God in and of itself is powerful all by itself. It is powerful. An atheist reads it. You've heard me mention before, uh, it, it's been a while, but you know, Ray Comfort tells the story of when uh, some atheist was mocking him when he was homesick one day because he does street outreach, and the atheist was mocking him, uh, mocking him, mockingly reading some scriptures down on, I think it was Venice Beach, but somewhere there in California. And and someone ended up getting saved because they were so nauseated by the way the atheist did it that they came to Ray and said, tell us more. So God, the Word of God is always powerful. It never returns void. It's always powerful, no matter who reads it, especially when it's read aloud. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is powerful. It does convict. Don't be misunderstood when people act like, I don't believe that. It went deep. Now Jesus, on top of all this, He is the Word. Not only is the Word of God powerful, when you and I read it, when anyone else reads it, when the Word of God is spoken, it has power, but of course Jesus not only is reading the Word, He is the Word. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Himself is the living incarnate, the Word made flesh there in John 1. So when the Son of God, who is the Word of God, reads the Word of God, you have an exponential, powerful explosion in the presence of Jesus being the Son of God and the Word of God, reading the Word of God in the presence of everyone there in Nazareth. Now, we can only imagine the weight and the impact as it fell upon their ears. Can you imagine if Jesus 
stepped up here and read Isaiah 61 to us? I mean, doesn't preach a sermon, just reads. You're talking about the living word, the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, reads his own self to you. And he's drenched, in the, he's just spent 40 days in the wilderness, drenched by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's overflowing with the power of God. He reads a couple of verses and sits down. Two verses and sits down. We have some clues here of the power that's unleashed with him just reading these couple of verses. We'll look at those clues in just a minute. But we see some of the powerful impact of Jesus simply reading this text. Before we look at the immediate response to this prophetic word that Jesus reads, and then his subsequent, subsequent commentary. He has a brief commentary. Let's turn to the section in the Old Testament. In the, in the Tanakh, if you uh, remember the Hebrew word for the Old Testament, Tanakh, Isaiah 61. Turn to your left, go to Isaiah 61, and let's look at this in its context and understand what this chapter is about. The remainder of the chapter is about, it's only 11 verses. A small chapter, 11 verses, Isaiah 61. What we don't know, we won't know until we get to heaven because the Bible doesn't record it, we don't know if when Jesus was at, when he came to stand up there and read the text, the attendant there, the shamash in the Hebrew, uh, that hands him the scroll or hands him the book. Uh, we don't know if it was already open to Isaiah 61. If it was dated, see today in the, uh, in the synagogues, even today in the synagogues, they continually read through the Torah. And then they also have times where they read through the prophets. And of course, Isaiah is the prophets, not the Torah, the Torah being the first five books. We don't know if the practice at that time was reading kind of chronologically through a, through a certain reading of the prophets, and it fell on that day. Remember how it fell, the lot fell for Zacharias to go in at the, at the time of incense? We don't know if God had orchestrated that it, Isaiah 61 fell on the day that Jesus was going to walk in the temp, uh, synagogue. We don't know if it was turned there and handed to him, and boom, they turn exactly to 61, or if Jesus himself turns it to 61. Nevertheless, God says, this will be read in your hearing, Isaiah 61, and let's look at what he reads here in the first two verses. Isaiah 61, starting with verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops. That's where Jesus stops. But what comes right after that comma? And the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't read that. He stopped at the last, just before that comma, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says he closed the book and sat down. Now, Jesus knew the whole rest of the chapter, didn't he? Unlike you and I with scripture memorization, he had the whole Bible memorized. 
He knows what's come, he knows what's after that comma. But he doesn't say that. Not because that what comes after the comma won't take place, but that's not what he's proclaiming at that moment. He stops there. Now, certainly many of the people that were there, they know what comes after that comma too. Though they may not understand what it means, because many times they didn't, they would explain it away. It means something different anyway. Uh, even when you talk to people today, you try and share them a verse, uh, they'll say, ah, I don't think it means that. Well, yes, it does. Well, let's look at the rest. Let's look at the rest of what this says. Uh, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord uh, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I won't read any further because the rest of it uh, talks about the restoration of Israel. And what we have here, similarly, um, you know that Daniel talks about the 70 weeks. How many weeks have already been fulfilled? 69, right? There's still a 70th week. And it it may be odd to you. I'm sure it's odd to a lot of people. Why is this one straggling week hanging out there yet to be fulfilled? It's been well said that this comma after to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord starts a 2,000-year comma. Because it says the day of vengeance of our God. There will come a time where God's going to pour out his wrath. Now Israel's received a lot of God's vengeance, a lot of God's wrath. They were carried off into captivity. As I mentioned, we're, on these, we're in the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights. Israel has endured the chastening of the Lord numerous times, has been torn, has been dispersed among the nations, has been chastened heavily. And yet, there's still a 70th week. There's a time of Jacob's trouble coming that's worse than all the other times, which is hard to believe when you, when you study history. But not just worse for, for Israel, worse for the nations. Everyone, the world will suffer like the world has never suffered before. And some of the plagues will kill a third of mankind in a single time. It'll make things like the Black Plague and all the things, the day of God's vengeance that is coming when the world no longer uh, responds to the grace of God, God will pour out something similar as he did in the days of Noah. What happened then? God destroyed the entire world with a flood with the exception of one family. And God will again destroy the earth, but this time with fire and the fire of his indignation, the fire of his wrath. Now, Jesus is the one who's going to be captain of the Lord's host who's going to execute the judgment. But he stops here, and he doesn't get into that little phrase. Now, notice, too, that there's not a whole lot said about the vengeance. It goes straight into the restoration of Israel. See, God's desire is always that his judgment would produce a contrite heart, and a return of his people to himself. Amen? He does not want to destroy Israel. In fact, he will not utterly destroy Israel. The Bible talks about all the time. The prophet's like, Lord, do not utterly destroy. And he doesn't utterly destroy, like, forever. He will rebuild. He will bring healing. Many of you, you suffered 
at times, God's chastening, but you weren't utterly destroyed because he used it to bring you back into his manifold grace. And this is the same that Jesus will someday do. But at this moment of time, and why I wanted you to go back to Isaiah, Jesus is cognizant of the whole 11 verses, but he focuses on the fact that I have come to Nazareth, and yes, I've come to Israel to proclaim salvation. Not judgment. The Son of Man has not come to judge the world in his first coming. He came to redeem the world with the work on the cross. His second advent is a whole different story, isn't it? His second coming. He doesn't come. Jesus comes to the earth the first time as a suffering servant, as the Lamb of God. He comes the second time, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not riding the second time on a foal of a donkey. He's on a white horse prepared for battle. And that comes after the comma. And so it's so important that we understand that when Jesus stands, go back to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands and reads this, he's proclaiming peace terms to anyone that's willing to come. Remember, Jesus said, all who are thirsty, come, come. There's nobody, I don't care what anyone has done in Chesterfield County or Richmond or the United States, it doesn't matter what sin you may be in if you're still lost and without Christ. It doesn't matter what a person's done. Under the peace terms of Christ, he offers 100% pardon and forgiveness right now, this minute, today, for every single person that will be willing to call upon the name of the Lord. He stopped at the comma. He could have talked about vengeance, and he had every right to do so. Amen? He could have talked about what's coming. But he doesn't. He says, I've come to heal. I've come to proclaim liberty. I've come to give the recovery of sight to people who are blind. Not only spiritually blind, but even physically blind. He did a lot of physical healing, which we'll see even in this same chapter as we go on. You know, he, he knows that those who are poor, they've been, um, they're spiritually poor. Because sin has left them empty, thirsty, naked, wretched, blind, as he says in Revelation. All of these things, they are poor. They don't realize they're spiritually poor. They don't realize they don't have the treasure of salvation. Everything else will fall apart. As I noted this week, I actually uh, sent it out on Twitter when I saw those eight Corvettes fall through the earth, and I, I Put out, I, I sent a tweet out that said that only those things we lay in heaven are actually safe from rust, moth, wildfires in California, earth opening up. Only thing that is safe. And the only thing that actually gives us a true riches is the richness of salvation. Salvation that comes from the Lord. And Jesus said, I've come to set people free from sin. I've come, all those who are oppressed by all of these lies that they believe, that Satan continues to tell people. Uh, you know, I was down at, when I was down in Williamsburg last week, I was t uh, talking about belief. And, uh, you know, when Satan lies to the world, and he lies nonstop, and people believe it, hook, line, and sinker, you and I did before we came to Christ. We still, even after salvation, buy into some of his 
concocted lies, don't we? But when people believe in it, you know, Satan, when he puts up a road sign to lead people to hell, it doesn't say this way to hell and this way to heaven, but let me tell you why going to hell is so great. Both road signs say this way to heaven when Satan constructs them. You, you understand that, right? So when people believe the lies of Satan and they find themselves brokenhearted, destitute, full of guilt, full of shame, Jesus says, I don't offer two road signs, I offer one, myself. And mine is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no deception. It's 100% true. Everything you've believed in, if you've believed in religion or money or ideologies or self-pleasure or whatever you believed in, you found yourself bankrupt. And Jesus said, I alone can set you free from bondage, from sin, from wickedness. And people can't even stop doing the evil. Remember when he met the man of Gadara, the man was in so much torment from the divine world, he was slicing himself up. And Jesus set him free, didn't he? This is what Jesus will do. Let's look at this observation. His observation, starting in verse 20, then he closed the book, gave it back to the intendant of the Shamash, and sat down, and the eyes of those from the synagogue were fixed on him. Two observations uh, we see here. Jesus then makes one. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We have a physical observation on their part. They are observing him, watching his every move now. The power of God's upon him. When, when the Son of God, who is the Word of God, speaks the Word of God, there's great power. But on top of it, he's speaking a prophetic passage that he says is going to set people free. Now, in their minds, there are some freedoms they'd like to see. They would love to be freed from the yoke of Rome. True? They hate Rome. Freed from the yoke of Rome. You know, if someone told you that you were going to be freed from the yoke of Citibank credit, if you owe 26000 on the credit card, you'd be pretty happy, right? Or the yoke of whatever your income tax burden is, or whatever. It is. But Jesus is talking about something greater than those things. They don't know what he's about to say, but they know the power of God has just spoken in their presence, and they're observing him. And then he makes a stunning statement for them to observe who they've been in the presence of. And again, the power and the weight of the word there must have been almost palpable. Their eyes fixed on him as if in the Greek, uh, just, just about glued to him. He's captured their full attention. You know, sometimes people's minds are wandering. Maybe yours is wandering now because I don't quite have the same captivating appeal that Jesus does. I get that. But when, at this moment, nobody's mind was wandering. Everyone was fixed on him because God had uttered in their presence, literally, prophetically. And Jesus has all of their 
eyes on him intently, wondering, what did we just hear? What will he now say? Because what he does, he doesn't actually return to the congregation. When he stands up and reads this, what it says is he sits down. The way this worked in the synagogue is if you were one of the rabbis or one of the teachers, in this case, they let Jesus take the book, read the book. He doesn't go sit down. It says he closed it and sits down, which is what the rabbis would do when they would teach. Uh, it was an act of humility. Um, it might not even be a bad idea for all of us as pastors to sit on a stool and teach because what they would do is they would sit down in humility to the Word and teach from a seated position. In other words, that God was above and they would sit down and they would humbly share. So Jesus would sit down and he's about to teach. But he doesn't do a really long teaching. It's a short and very pointed, sharp teaching. And a matter of fact, Jesus can teach more in a couple of minutes than everyone else in human history combined. Amen? But he's going he's to sit down, and they don't know what he's going to say. And what he does say is in verse 21. His commentary on the text is this. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward as you'll ever find a teaching to be, and only Jesus could teach this. No other no other prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, apostle could teach what he taught because he alone is the text. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah lived hundreds of years earlier. No one's ever seen this text fulfilled. And Jesus says, today, right here in Nazareth, this is fulfilled. The anointed one. The, remember the, the text. The spirit of the, the text says, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me." Or the word means anointed. What is the anointed one? Not an anointed one. The anointed one means Messiah. It only applies to Christ. There were kings that were anointed. There were priests that were anointed. There were prophets that were anointed. They were anointed ones. But Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, not a Messiah the Messiah, he says, I am the one that the Lord has anointed to set people free. I'm the one. Remember what his name was going to be called Jesus or Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not save his people from Caesar Augustus. Right? Not save the people from any of the Roman authority, but to save his people from their sins. And he is saying, I am. The I am is in your presence. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I have fulfilled this. And notice their response. They all bore witness. And they marveled. So far, no offense. They're a little taken back. Everyone's trying to adjust to this. This is a heavy thing. Husbands and wives turning to each other. Did I just hear that right? I think you did. I think he just said this is fulfilled in our presence. Well, he did read that, and the hair was standing up on the back of my neck as he was reading. Mine too. My mouth got dry as he was reading. Mine too. I have never heard anyone read like that. Me neither. 
He read with an authority. Remember what the Bible says when the apostles, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it said that they, even the people heard them speak, they said, we've not heard men speak with such authority. Where does true authority come from? It comes from God. If God truly bestows the real article on himself, his own son, by the power of his Holy Spirit, there's unmistakable power in the room Everyone senses it. They're in the synagogue. They're not actually in some unholy place. They're in the Lord's house. They're in the synagogue. Their holy place, now the temple is the most holy place, but there were synagogues built regionally that were to be representative of what would take place, the worship that would take place in the synagogue, was representative of the same type of uh, ministry of the, of the priesthood there in the temple, but here they are in the synagogue, and Jesus has spoken, and they marveled. And it says they marveled at the gracious words. These are gracious words. He stopped at the comma, didn't he? He didn't mention the vengeance part. Not that they, not that they were thinking about that. Some may have been. Some may not have even known the text, just like today. There's people that knew their Bibles, and there's people that didn't know their Bibles. There's people that knew what was coming next. There's people that probably didn't know what was coming next. That we don't know why they said specifically, they marveled at his gracious words, but Jesus, his tone was humble and gracious because Luke records it for us. They marveled at his gracious words. I mean... When you've heard someone speak graciously, you know the difference between someone speaking graciously and someone speaking arrogantly or condemning. He wasn't doing that. He was very gracious. And they could sense it in his tone, in his words. And again, the text that he read stopped short of judgment. It only mentioned freedom. Who doesn't want freedom? Who doesn't really want to be set free? Who doesn't want to see if they're blind? Who doesn't want to be, have the handcuffs taken off if they're cuffed? All of these things, these are the things that Jesus proclaimed. But let's look at the response, this final point, an outrage. And it starts there in verse 22, the second half of the verse. It starts with, the old arrow in the heart of doubt. Is this not Joseph's son? Now, I, I, thought, I meditated a lot. I think about this, and I'm, I try and put myself in the place of the, of the people in Nazareth. Put, your place, put yourself in their place. They really have watched him grow up in the household of Joseph and Mary. We don't know how many of them were aware of the miraculous events surrounding his birth. I don't have any. Again, I'm just surmising. I don't know. My guess is some absolutely knew about the miraculous events surrounding his death. Some may not have. I I don't know. uh, We'll find out when we get to heaven who knew what. There was a lot of things that, that would have been known. And they've grown up with Jesus, and some of them 
you know, may have worked with him in construction. They've been around him. They could not accept that all of a sudden, the guy that they, in their minds, understood as Joseph's son is their Messiah. Because they know what Isaiah 61 is about. They know that whoever Isaiah 61 is speaking of is going to restore the glory of Israel. I, I didn't get a chance to read the rest of the 11th chapter. Go home and read the rest of the 11th chapter. It's beautiful. The nation will be a nation of priests and all these things. And they know that whoever the Messiah is will usher in, although they like to skip over that little vengeance part. Just right over top of that one. Because you can't get to the good stuff without going through that. But nevertheless, they have struggles here. Is this not Joseph's son? And the doubts start to come in like a flood. You know, you and I as believers, Satan wants you to doubt everything Jesus says, everything you read in your devotions. As I was instructing uh, Williamsburg last week, which I will, the Lord has put on my heart to uh, to say this on a regular basis, I, I, I teach this to my own daughters in our own house. I say, folks, when we read the Word of God again and again and again in your prayer life, just pray it back to God and say, Lord, I believe this. I believe what I just read. I don't care if you're reading the Psalms, if you're reading the book of Acts, if you're reading the book of Genesis, whatever you read and you see what God is saying, pray it back. God loves to hear you tell Him, I believe it. John said in the book of John approximately 100 times, believe. It is a big, big problem with people is the only thing they will not believe in this world is the words of the Bible. They'll believe what they saw on Facebook. They'll believe what they read in the New York Times. They'll believe what someone texted them. It could be wrong. They'll forward it to 10 friends and realize, oh, it was a hoax. And then God has spoken in the presence of people I don't know if I believe this. And putting yourself in their place, what were they feeling? Wherever God, Jesus believed, when we get to, we'll, we'll go through this last text in just a minute. Jesus fully believed. Not, I, I take that back. Not fully believed. Jesus knew, not believed. Jesus knew that he had just revealed enough truth for every single person there to believe. And by the way, he's the judge of whether he's revealed enough truth for everyone to believe. Amen? There's not another authority. No one could say, well, if you would have shown us a slideshow of your childhood till now, if you would have shown us a picture of when you used to live in heaven, we would buy this whole thing that you actually are the Messiah. But Okay, we felt the power of God. We felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our hair stood up on end. We saw that you've been perfect your whole life. You read the passage, but we don't believe. Because here's the thing. Jesus went to other people, including the disciples that he called. He simply said, follow me, and people just dropped their nets and did it. What's the difference? The only thing that makes us turn from our doubts and disbelief is to humble ourselves at the foot of the at the foot of the Lord. And they immediately, Satan comes in, just like he did in the garden. Hath the Lord said, hath God really said, he didn't really mean it. He's, this is Joseph's son. 
Who do you think is in there sowing seeds of deceit? Jesus is not the only one in the synagogue, just as he wasn't the only one in the desert. There's a liar and a deceiver telling people he's not the Messiah. Your Messiah will be a great king. This guy's the son of Joseph. You see it? The enemy is also working hard to sow seeds of doubt. That Jesus would tell the parable of the sower, when the seed is sown, the enemy comes and psh, snatches up truth that fast. God throws it down. Satan grabs it quickly and says, that's not for you. He's not your Messiah. If he was, you would have seen him do some great things because he's done nothing good here, has he? Oh, you heard about what he did at Capernaum. Have you seen it here? You haven't seen any of this stuff. And he goes on to say that. He says in verse 23, And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. <laughs> things, things are about to get real, as the term is said, right? Because all of a sudden, the gracious words, Jesus now reads the minds and hearts of everybody here and says, Everything I've said has just been rejected. You guys were doing well. You were marveling. You loved the gracious words. And then all of a sudden, you said, hold on a second. I'm a skeptic. It's Joseph's son. And, but furthermore, you, Jesus knows their mind. They're, think, they're thinking, we haven't, we've heard about all these things you've done in Capernaum. We haven't seen them. Show it to us. Show us what you got. It's in their heart. They weren't even saying it. Remember on the times where you'll see Jesus will actually say something to someone he was reading their minds. They didn't actually say it. They have not said anything here about the miracles, but he knows they're thinking about the fact that word has traveled from Capernaum to Nazareth that he's done these great things, but they haven't seen it, so they're not buying it until they see it. Say, physician, heal yourself, which is the Proverbs say, show us if you got the goods, if you know how to heal, heal. And Jesus resists their prideful response and says, no prophet, in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his own country. This is not just true of Jesus. This has been true in prior in Scripture. How, how much was Joseph accepted by his brothers? Not well. How much was Moses accepted by the children of Israel the first time he came to them? And even when he came back the second time, at first there was a big... Stiff arm from the people. Who are you to lead us? And you're actually, and then he comes back the second time, now you've made things worse than they were. Moses was not readily accepted by the people. Joseph wasn't readily accepted. How about David? His brothers accepted him a lot, didn't they? No. No, no one in the household of David accepted David. When he was God's anointed man, the brothers said, get away from here. Go back home. How about Isaiah who Jesus just read from. Isaiah was so not accepted by Israel that Manasseh had him killed by sawing him in two. And he quotes from Isaiah. And there's no coincidence that he's quoting from Isaiah for a multitude of reasons, but Isaiah was not accepted by Israel either. Nor was Elijah or Elisha, who he also mentions. They were not accepted by the people in their own nation. Even though... God had used those men to save and keep a rebellious nation from completely being utterly destroyed, Elijah and Elisha, in both cases. 
He goes on to say, I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when heaven was shut up for three years and six months. By the way, this is a judgment that America has not had yet. But woe to us if it ever comes. Can you imagine if our country doesn't have rain for three and a half years? You talk about, you cannot comprehend the calamity if we didn't have rain for three and a half years. This is one that God has not yet allowed to happen. It's only by God's grace, isn't it? Don't complain about the snow. It waters your earth. Be glad you get snow. They would have gladly had snow in the three and a half years that it became like a brazen copper dome over Israel until Elijah, who prayed that it would be used to bring them to repentance, finally prayed. Remember, the prophets of Baal were destroyed, and then it rained because he was a man of great faith and prayed, and the rains came again. Well, this one hasn't happened uh, ever to us. We do have drought going on in multiple places. About half the nation's been in drought the last few years. But we haven't had this one yet. Uh, pray that the Lord uh, is merciful. And then uh, he has Elijah here uh, went to the widow Zarephath. And then Elisha with uh, Naaman who had uh, leprosy. Jesus making the point that uh, even though Israel at that time had a rebellious heart, God found some soft hearts outside the commonwealth of Israel. And Jesus saying, just because you're from Nazareth and just because I'm from Nazareth doesn't mean that you're going to be receiving special treatment. You have to have a repentant heart just like everybody else. And you have a roadblock issue that you don't believe that I am who I say I am, but you're just like your forefathers that also didn't believe and the prophets that were from their area. So you are acting just like the rebellious forefathers of Israel. This is not the kind of conversation they were now enjoying. Right? They liked the commentary at first, gracious, but now when he's pointing out their issues. They had two major issues. Unbelief and pride. Unbelief and pride. In Acts 14, 2, it says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Maybe a group started out not believing the testimony of Jesus and then it begins to spread around the synagogue. If the big shots... Usually it's the big shots, right? The big shots in the room said, we don't believe it, no one else believes it. The fathers of the house, this is Joseph's son. We don't believe this, we reject this. Not enough evidence. I don't see any miracles. And then everybody starts to believe it, and everyone says, you're not who we... And if you are, oh, we'll give you a chance. Show us some miracles, give us a sign. You know how Jesus reacted when people said, give us a sign? He would say, no sign will be given to you. <laughs> Every time he'll say, show us what, show, call what they at. And by the way, him mentioning Elijah and Elisha is interesting too, because Elisha calls what out of heaven? Fire. Whenever they said, ask for a sign, what they really wanted was a magnificent, something over kind of nature-ish, right? Calling fire down to heaven. If, I, if you're as good, if you're as top-notch as Elijah, you should be able to do something like that. I'm not saying that they were thinking those precise things here. We don't know. 
My point is Jesus knows that they are saying a proverb in their minds, physician, heal yourself. Show us what you got. That's pride. It's pride to, it is such a prideful thing. If any of you watched the creation debate with Bill Nye, the science guy, and, and uh, Ken Ham, it is a prideful thing for human beings to fold their arms and say, God, prove to me you exist. When anyone stands before the great white throne judgment, that will be accounted for. You were so arrogant. You wanted me to prove I exist when I was wanting you to bow at my feet. But you said, I will when you prove to me you exist. Jesus has said, his word is enough. A lot of people don't, they're not, that's not good enough for a lot of people. He says, my word, my testimony, the Ark of the Covenant inside the Ten Commandments, they were called the testimony. The testimony of God is enough. He does not have to show you the fire burn with blackness. He does not have to show you the hands. Jesus said, when he saw Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. He doesn't have to show us anything. He has to say it, and we have to believe it. They had literally Jesus in their presence. They didn't believe, and on top of all that, they had the folded arms pride of, show us more. He's like, I just read from Isaiah. I just revealed it to you. I just showed you I'm the fulfillment and by the way, the people from Capernaum that were genuinely healed, that had probably come over and said, I, I was blind and he made me see. How would they react? Every time Jesus would do this, every went, people weren't impressed. Even if they saw someone, someone who was lame from birth, they would still be like, eh, no big deal. He did it on a Sabbath on top of it, and that makes us mad. He goes on. And he's, and, uh, or to finish up the text here, wrap things up, verse 28. So all the synagogue, once they come to the place that they don't believe, and their pride says, we need more evidence. We need more. Show us. Convince us. And Jesus says, not happening. No prophets love their own country. I'll move on. They heard these things, and they're filled with not just agitation, wrath. You wonder how Christians are persecuted around the world? When people resist the Word of God, their response is wrath, eventually. It may build up a little time. J.C. Ryle says, no Christian in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for... There is no Christian who's in a healthy state of mind, who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. Even in America, you better be prepared because the world doesn't want to hear the whole counsel of God. They'll marvel at the gracious words. God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. And God is love, but he's also holy. And when Jesus says, no, I will not bring you salvation and freedom on your terms, It'll come on my Father's terms. Everyone agree with that? It doesn't come on our terms. Jesus sets the terms. And the terms are, humble yourself, contrite heart, believe, 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 believe my words, and follow me. If you say, I'll do that if God, 
The Bible says he gives grace to the humble, but he does what to the proud? He resists the proud. In other words, he rejects. He resists them and says, not yet. You change your heart, I'll give you grace. He comes with terms of grace, but those terms of grace are based on simply humbling ourselves. And they rose up, and they actually thrust him out of the city. Now, there's a, there's a mob here. They've actually surrounded him, and they've somehow, whether they've picked him up literally or pushed him all the way to the brow of a hill. There's many hills there in Israel, and they're about to push him over a cliff. Now, this should have been a pretty good clue that they were dealing with the Son of God. All of a sudden, he just walks right through them all. Everyone should say, well, that was odd. <laughs> we had no trouble taking him from the synagogue all the way to the hill, and then right when we think we're going to execute him, he walked through us, possibly, literally, through their bodies. Because he has power, it was not yet his time, and not only was it not yet his time to die, he had to die a horrific torturous, bloodshed death. And according to Psalms 22, he had to have his hands and feet pierced. And that getting pushed over a cliff is a quick death that doesn't pierce your hands and feet. And Jesus just walks right through them. This should have been a clue to them. Hopefully some of them came to their senses and said, I think that really was the Messiah because we couldn't even kill him unless he was ready. And by the way, his brother, Jude, or Judas, who writes the book of Half-Brother, Judas, and James were probably in their midst. And someday later, isn't this beautiful? Someday later, they actually believe in their own brother, and they consider themselves, they actually call themselves servants. They won't even name themselves in James and Jude as brothers of the Lord out of humility. Isn't that great? In this group. Probably his brothers are there. At least not stopping people, but consenting to the fact that, hey, he's gone off the rails. I don't know what he's talking about either. But you know what? You and I can trust Jesus' words. Amen? We can trust him the first time. Don't ask God for more evidence. Just say, Lord, I believe. Whatever it is in your own life, don't ask him for another prove me this, prove me that, prove me this. Say, Lord, you've already proved it on the cross. I simply believe your word. Amen? Let's give him a welcome homecoming in our hearts. Not an unwelcome homecoming. That, that's what took place. We need to give him a welcome homecoming every morning. Say, Lord, you've made residence in my heart. And I just read in my devotions or I've been in prayer Lord, I don't understand how you're still blessing us because we don't feel blessed right now. That happens sometimes. Lord, we're not sensing this, but your word is faithful and true. You are called, Jesus' name, the faithful and true witness. Amen? Let's close in prayer.